Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen southeast hyphen Asia hyphen centre. That's centre spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. And by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies, and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information, email gai at griffith.edu.au or visit the website griffith.edu.au forward slash Asia Institute. That's Asia Institute as one word. Recent years have brought a burgeoning interest in how highland people in mainland Southeast Asia live and communicate along and across borders geographically assigned to states whose lowland people and their rulers were once but are today no longer so far away. The Lisu, Far From the Ruler, published by the University Press of Colorado in 2017, is the first book to document the lives and hopes of Lisu in Thailand, Myanmar, and Yunnan. The book's author, Michelle Zak, is a journalist and historian, and she's speaking with me, Nick Cheesman, a fellow at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific and host of the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies channel of the New Books Network. Michelle, thank you for coming on to the show to talk about the Lisu. Well, thank you, Nick, for asking me. Michelle, to begin with one of your own questions, who are the Lisu? The Lisu are a highland minority, only about one and a half million, although all numbers are approximate. About 700,000 live in Yunnan, perhaps four to 500,000 in Myanmar, and 50 to 60,000 in Thailand. Can you fill in that brief sketch with a little bit more detail about what are the characteristics that make them distinctive as a group? I think political style really characterizes them and and makes them very distinct. They are highland farmers mainly, traditionally, although now many of them have moved down to lowland areas that are far closer to the ruler than their ancestors would have thought wise. Some of them now actually plant paddy rice, but traditionally they lived probably, you know, above four or 5,000 feet. They tended to be the farmers who farmed highest up on the mountaintop. The thing that attracted me to them was their, they have a really uh, non-hierarchical style and they have a, gender power balance, which is pretty unusual, and that the women have a lot of power. Women control the money, and you won't find a man who will say that women are any less. They have a distinct style of humor. They're very, very funny people. And their style of migration really distinguishes them in that they tended to migrate in smaller groups, like even four or five people or three or four families would migrate. And that accounts for how they became so widely dispersed. 
when I received this book, my first reaction was that the title in some ways seemed a bit old-fashioned. It, it did bring to mind reprints of colonial-era ethnographies like Scots, the Burman, or Jihod's, the Kachins. In this day and age of ethnicity without groups of ethnographies that tend to deconstruct rather than construct established categories, why did you write a book that's so definitively about the Lisu? Or why even ask a question like, who are the Lisu? Probably the the most simple direct answer I can give to that question is that I was hired to write a book by Teak House Press back in the 90s. They were working on a series of ethnographies that was called Peoples and Culture of Southeast Asia. So that was way back in the 90s when I, I lived in Thailand. And I wrote a first version of this book back then. However, that company went out of business and I, it had to been work for hire. So I'd been paid and, and then I came home to California and I have several manuscripts that hadn't seen print, but the Lisu somehow really stuck with me and I, I couldn't forget it. So gradually I gained back the copyright. I found a new publisher. And in the meantime, of course, a lot of new research had come about that didn't even exist the first time I wrote it. What happened is that I read a lot more. I learned a lot more. But I think what I used to define the Lisu was their own self-identification as Lisu. If someone tells me I'm a Lisu and they have a strong sense of identity, I'm not going to question that. I'm not an academic. I'm really probably just not following the trends in, in anthropology. Oh, we don't do that anymore. That was really not my approach. I use self-identification as Lisu. I, I went to Lisu areas, talked to people who told me they were Lisu and, and sort of took it from there. And you found that self-identification was consistent across the three countries where you did the research? Oh, yes. It was incredibly strong. It seems in all of these areas, a lot of minority groups definitely define themselves against the other and the, that meaning the, the majority population. And this was really strong with the Lisu. Amid the massive political, economic and social change in mainland Southeast Asia that your book really registers precisely because of the many years that it took to complete, is there something about the experience of Lisu specifically that you think makes their story particularly compelling? And to put it in terms of one of your own questions, why be so concerned with the Lisu now? I think one reason is that I started this project, it perhaps the last possible moment that it was possible. And I didn't really understand it at the time, but because it's the project has gone on so long, I realized it when I went back in 2014 because everything had changed. But when I started back in the 90s, it was possible to meet Lisu living more or less as they had. I mean, there were definitely outside influences. Globalization had taken hold. However, I would go to villages all the time, and I did go to fairly remote places where everyone in the village was dressed in a certain costume that identified them as Lisu. So I I felt that even as a journalistic assignment in the first place, I think no self-respecting anthropologist would probably have taken this on because it was far too broad, but that here was an opportunity to look at a, a culture that was distinct, that was likely, you know, not, not to be here in 50 years. You couldn't start this research that, that I did today. It would be too late. And then when I went back in 2014 and things had changed so much in all three countries and it changed in ways that I might not have anticipated, at first I thought the change was too much. But after 
spending a little time, I realized that although a lot of the outward markers of such as costumes had changed and some of the way people lived had changed and they were more people growing patty, more urbanly soup, that there was still this really strong cultural identity, that that had really not changed at all. And so that made me realize or think that it was it was worthwhile to look at this one culture. And in, in a way, it became like a, a mini study in, in globalization, kind of a narrow, just to look at one people in three different national settings who, who had changed in, in different ways and yet still had a very strong self-identity as Lisu. Let's pick up on that point about cultural identity, because as you've just said, you are quite insistent on the persistence of a form of cultural identity, which can be observed, which your interlocutors also stressed. And yet so many other things have changed. One of those is religious practice, which is intimately related to cultural identity. Could you tell us a bit, first of all, about religious practice among the Lisu in the three countries where you documented it? Well, the religious practice varies really widely. The religious practice of the Lisu, let's say, in Yunnan, in some of the upper Salween Valley, is kind of a, a basic animism that changed all along the, the Lisu migration routes. So the, the Lisu are very practical, they're borrowers. And so along the way, they picked up Chinese religious practices, they picked up Buddhism. And in Burma, today, probably 75 or 80% have become Christian. For that reason, and when I started my research, I thought, oh, well, the, the Lisu in Myanmar are going to hardly be Lisu at all now that they're Christians. So I thought as a baseline, I would start in northern Thailand, and then I went to China. And I thought, well, then I'll, I'll leave I'll leave Myanmar for last, because I had sort of a bias that, oh, well, once they're Christian, they're going to be very different. The biggest surprise for me was to go to Myanmar and spend time there and find that I'd say there was more continuity, even though they had, had become Christian, in, in terms of what I had come to know as lisuness, like their sense of humor was the same, they still believed in spirits, you know, they changed some behavior, probably the most dramatic is that they had mainly given up drinking, except for the Catholics, but most lisu in Myanmar are evangelical Christians. But instead of having a whole group of different spirits, the, the land spirit and so forth, and the forest spirit, they had just sort of changed their interface and they would only go directly to the top man, Wusa, who was in the Lisu pantheon as the sky god. And for most Lisu who were animists, the sky god was a very remote god who didn't have that much to do with the daily workings of people. So it, it doesn't mean that the Lisu who have become Christian deny the presence of, of all the other spirits. They've just substituted that one. And I mean, in the end, what I began to question was, is it that different who you say a prayer to, whether it's directly to the sky god when you open a field or a child is born? Lisu everywhere tell me that it's not like they don't believe in spirits anymore. The spirits still exist, but they just try to ignore them. The book has the three chapters, the comparison of Thailand, Myanmar, and southern China. As you say, that the comparison of this sort is full of opportunities to be wrong. What do you mean by that? And how did you deal with those opportunities? When you write about something as I did in, in the 90s, 
the situation in each country had changed so shockingly for me that some of the predictions or things that I had thought in the 90s were just really turned on their heads. That's what I meant by that. So what are the implications for Lisu in those countries? Well, they're different in every country. I will say the one thing in terms of national scene that really stood out for me is that like Lisu in Thailand tend to hate the government, <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it. They're kind of on the bottom of the totem pole. They don't have very good access to education or to health care. You know, they, they have a really antagonistic relationship. Half of them are still not citizens. And in, in Myanmar, which has been so riddled by conflict and war, people feel that the government is very far from them and, and doesn't do anything for them at all. China is different. China was really, this really surprised me. And I, you know, never expected to become an apologist for China. But I will say that the Lisu that I met in Yunnan are the only patriotic Lisu, the only Lisu that sort of feel themselves to be part of the national scene. And, and that was really interesting to me. And, and I think it's, it's pretty obvious why. Every little tiny hamlet is electrified. I mean, when I was in very remote places in Yunnan where I had to hike up two and a half hours up to the top of a hill, I could hold up my phone and I'd have three bars and I could call. And then the children who live in these villages are sent to school. They go to boarding school in the week, and yet they are allowed to come home every weekend. So they keep their connection to the village. Whereas almost every Thai Lisu I met who had an education, had gone to college, had more or less had to give up their village connection because they would be sent off to school and would be allowed to come home one week a year. And two days of that week would be spent in travel. So they more or less had to really undergo much harsher family separation. So in, in Thailand and Myanmar, access to education is not as good. Whereas in China, practically, you know, all these who at least get through high school and many of the ones I met, you know, or many of the people I met had, had children who were attending college, getting an, a higher level education. To some extent, with the exception of Myanmar, might the book not have been written with the subtitle as an interrogative, far from the ruler, question mark? And the scene you describe in China in particular, it sounds as if the ruler is being embraced. The title actually came from a, a Lisu proverb, and the entire proverb is, it's good to live close to the water, but it's better to live far from the ruler. And it, it's more of a of an aspiration or a, a way that most Lisu traditionally like to be as far away from any authorities as possible. This is obviously changing. It's changing, and yet that value, I think, has been internalized. And so even though Lisu are trying to figure out, you know, they want to get the benefits that they might get from citizenship or living in various national settings. Mainly these benefits have, have not been so forthcoming. So it's not as if the Lisu are still far from the ruler. They're getting, they're getting closer and closer all the time. I mean, that's definitely true. Michelle, there are a lot of colorful personalities in the chapters of the book that are going country by country. Who were some of your favorite interlocutors? There were a few people who became extremely important to me as helpers and as friends. In Myanmar, 
Even before I went there, when I was in Thailand, I had heard, oh, there's a Lisu senator now, and you should get in touch with him. A few people had given me his phone number. I really had no idea of what to expect. I spoke to him a few times on the telephone when I was in Rangoon and or Yangon. And then he said, oh, why don't you just come to dinner, meet my family, which was a wonderful invitation. I had no idea what to expect. My husband and I went and had dinner with him and his family. And he lived in a flat above a very busy, congested commercial district. And it was up several flights of dingy stairs. And there I knocked on his door and, you know, welcome. And he was this positively beaming character and in a small one-room flat with four children and his wife and his mother-in-law and his sister-in-law, you know, we proceeded to have a really interesting evening. And Jaywoo was so brave. I couldn't believe his honesty about the political situation. And, you know, I was afraid for him, actually, because he seemed to be speaking so openly and so honestly. And, and I hadn't encountered that so much. I mean, Lisu in, that I met in Burma tended to say, oh, well, politicians just talk, talk, talk. They don't do anything. But here I, I met this guy who was very willing to share his goals, his aspirations, what he'd been doing. He wasn't afraid to comment really negatively on the generals and, and on the political system in, in Myanmar. So he became a very close informant interlocutor for me. And he also helped me in China uh, gain access to people I never would have met. He happened to be in China when I was there, and, and he got me an audience with the foreign minister of Nujiang, Lisu Autonomous Province. And, and he's since gone on to be reelected. He's actually come over to America and, and visited here. And I, I introduced him to some of our local political leaders, including supervisor of Los Angeles County and a state senator. So that relationship, I'd say, has been extremely rich for me. And he's given me so much insight. I just saw him in, in February when I went back to a Lisu International meeting in Chiang Mai. I also was able to go back to Myanmar at that point. Just having that kind of close relationship over time. I didn't get to do that as much as most anthropologists do who do field work in a more traditional way and go to one place and stay for eight months or something. I, I, I didn't do that kind of research. And especially the second round was entirely self-financed. And so I, I was more limited. So for Myanmar, I'd say he was probably my most important contact. And for China and Thailand? In Thailand, I'd say there were a couple. In the 1990s, one of my main mentors was Autumn Hudasing, who was a Dutch anthropologist. I spent time in her village and also in an, another nearby village. So I did meet a teenager named Chome because I stayed with her father, who was the headman at the time. And then I met her again in 2014, and she married a Hmong. She'd become extremely entrepreneurial, and she had started a coffee co-op in her village of Doichang and had actually gone on to have higher education and had gone to Montana for a program to teach entrepreneurship. She came to this country. She went back. She's totally dedicated to economic development in her village. Autumn a has a family who she calls her Lisu family. She And she has a daughter, Mimi Seju, who was also extremely helpful. And, and I had also met her in the 90s. So it's interesting to have that kind of relationship over several years. And Mimi is really a, a leader. She has started a 
little museum. She has acted as a translator for me. She is one who explained what she had to give up in order to get an education, having to to be in a boarding school where she was allowed to only come home one week a year. And and we had a lot of discussions about, she says, I don't even know what it means to be a Lisu or what I'm supposed to feel about it or, or if it's important. And yet she's totally immersed in Lisu projects, education projects, handicraft projects, maintaining this museum. So she's another person who has become very modern and yet seems to have devoted her life to Lisu cultural survival. And both Chome and and Mimi, who actually know each other, are two examples of women who are very entrepreneurial. In China, I met several Lisu shaman, and they were all old and they, you know, they would all say, well, I don't know the future, but I don't really see any shaman coming up after me because this tradition seems to be dying. I must have interviewed five or six of these guys. They, they didn't seem particularly upset. Like they were saying, oh, well, you know, it's better. People can go to the doctor now. And in one mixed Christian Lisu village just outside of Liku, one shaman said, oh, you know, I really like living next to Christian. They're really good people and they don't ask me for anything. And I really appreciate that because I don't get paid for this work and it's really hard and I'm getting old. But one after another all express this, well, yes, our tradition is dying out and it's okay because now people have medicine that's really quite effective. They just go to the doctor. And you'd think that they would feel more antagonistic toward Western medicine, but the five that I interviewed, not one of them expressed that. So let's pause for a moment for a message from one of our sponsors. And when we return, we'll touch on some other details of the book. And then we'll turn to discuss a bit more about how and why you wrote the book the way you did. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where today's guest is Michelle Sack, author of the Lisu, published in 2017 by the University Press of Colorado. Michelle, I suppose all of these responses lead back to this question of what it means to talk about the persistence of cultural identity, as you put it, cultural survival. When cultural survival falls to the hands of an urban professional person who identifies as Lisu rather than a shaman living in a village. Uh, What are the implications of that from your point of view? I think that there are, to give a real simple example, there are people who are farmers in America who feel very American, yet people in the city don't feel that they're any less American. I see it more like that. And just in February this year, I attended a Lisu international meeting north of Chiang Mai, and there were Lisu from all over the place, not just China, Myanmar, and Thailand, but also some from Laos and some from India. And I'd say that the theme very much was they were talking about cultural unity and the need to preserve language, the need for young people and old people to learn to read and write and become literate in their own language. Because, of course, Lisu language, it's a Tibeto-Burman language, and there was no writing system until about 
a hundred years ago when a missionary named Fraser developed a, a Lisu script that is Roman alphabet and it's got like upside down and backwards letters. And there was pushback from animists, from communists, from anyone who wasn't Christian about using this script. And yet all of the speakers, and a lot of them were Christian, were saying, listen, this is symbols on a page aren't Christian. They're not Buddhist. They're not animists. They're ways to write down our language, and we all need to learn this. And so there's like the alarm bells were really ringing, and these were more urban Lisu probably. I mean, there was a huge festival, and then, and then there was connected to it a conference that was more the, the elites and the more educated Lisu. And they all had singular focus on saying, you know, we've got to get over Christians looking down on animists and animists looking down on Christians or communists, you know, that we need to pull together to preserve our language. So that was pretty interesting to me. I didn't quite know what to expect. I'd been invited to this conference and everything was kind of sketchy about what what the agenda was. But when I was there, it was two days of speakers. And I'd say that was by far the overriding topic, how to preserve language and to get everyone to to learn to read and write uh, Lisu. And this is currently only happening in Myanmar, where the kids, they they learn in both government and religious schools how to write the Lisu language in Fraser's script. Hmm. But isn't the learning of a written language after so many thousands of years without one precisely an instance of then how they become closer to the ruler? This is an example of what some scholars would refer to as a legibility project rather than the strategic illegibility that comes with being non-literate. Yes. But, you know, listen, like I say, the Lisu are above all, just really pragmatic. And they've always been pragmatic and they've always adopted and adapted to varying situations and environments. And when they move, they have to learn a new farming technique. You know, they learn to go from mountain rice to paddy. So learning a written language, yes, of course, it's going to change them. I mean, just like education changes everybody. However, if you ask a someone who comes, let's say, from Africa or from Italy or wherever, they'll they'll still have that cultural identity, although they have learned to be literate. I mean, it's the nature of humanity that we're always changing and and learning things. And the Lisu are just part of that. I don't really see that remaining illiterate is necessarily going to preserve their culture. We're talking about language. You did a lot of interviews. What language or languages did you work in? And what were your experiences like working with translators where you use them? My experiences working with translators really varied, and it can be quite difficult. When I was in Thailand, my basic Thai was good enough that I could speak with some Lisu directly. But mainly I worked with translators, and I had some really very good ones. I had some that were not so good. And it was a a real challenge. I I just would, you know, had to do the best that I could. And and if I felt like just repeating questions, you're asking when you're doing this kind of work, you're asking the same questions over and over again, in every country to try to understand what, you know, what, what people want to express to you, like, you know, how has your life changed in the last 15 years would be a question I'd ask. Field work is tough. It was often really hard. But 
mainly, um, let's say when I went to China in the 90s, I went with Autumn Hudasing, who is completely fluent in Lisu, but she spoke the northern Thai dialect. And we went to really remote little areas like in the Dansha Valley and places that were outside of Teng Chong and so forth and up in the upper Salween. And what she found was after maybe two or three days, she was just fine. You know, that these people, they have split off, but they they split off recently enough that after a few days of conversation, Lisu everywhere can understand each other. So she was probably an example of one of my best translators, Jewu translated for me and his English is good. So it was probably the hardest and most frustrating thing that that I cannot speak Lisu. So I will admit that freely. How did you renew your commitment to the project? You talked about beginning the work in the 1990s and then returning to it later. That must have taken some effort. And also it must have taken a bit of work to convince a publisher that there was something in a project which had started more than a decade before, and then had been set to one side? Well, I I had moved back to California. And like many writers and journalists, I had many um, manuscripts that had not seen the light of day. But the Lisu really remained in my head. I'd say, I don't want to be too dramatic to say they haunted me. Even though I was completely into my career of, I I, I moved into writing history, local history and California history when I got back here in 1998. I retained my connections with Thailand. And in particular, I I retained my relationship with one of my main mentors, who was an anthropologist, uh, Paul Durenberger. And Durenberger did his fieldwork in the late 60s, early 70s in Thailand, and he'd studied Thai Lisu religious spiritual practices. Durenberger was also friends with my father-in-law, Walter Goldschmidt, who was a very well-known cultural anthropologist, and they worked together on some things. So I just had kept up my connection with him, and I had worked over the years to regain the copyright because my first book was a work for hire project. I'd been paid for it. I really didn't have any complaint since I I wasn't cheated. I was paid. However, it went out of business and I was it was really disappointing to me. So I just worked to get back in touch with the person who I'd signed the contract with and he returned the copyright to me. After he returned the copyright to me, I got back in touch with Durenberger, who thought that the project had merit, and he he introduced me to the uh, University of Colorado Press. It is an academic press, so I had to go through peer review. Uh, And I was just, I'd say, lucky, or my manuscript, my original manuscript had enough merit that they, they gave me high marks, and the editorial board all voted to take on my project. And at that point, I had said, listen, I need to update it. And they said, okay, but they didn't even insist that I go back and update it. But there was no way I could have updated it just through reading, even though there'd been so much interesting scholarship. I was really influenced by James Scott, um, you know, the art of not being governed and seeing like a state um, and, and several other scholars. So they agreed to publish my book. And then I took it on myself from that point to go back in, in 2014 and, and spend another couple of months in the field. And the book that it, as it exists now is a completely different book than the one that started. And I'd say that it's a much better book. And then the way I organized it was the first part is still more like an old-fashioned ethnography. 
And the second part is country-specific looks in which I take the story up to today in all three countries and give a sort of an update on what's happened in those countries as well. So I think it, it's a little bit like a study on globalization, looking at Lisu people in, in their various environments. And I, I think it's really not a, a normal book. It's not organized along the way uh, lines probably, but, but I think that that's what gives it a lot of value and makes it so interesting. As you say, it's not an academic book, but it is published by an academic press. And clearly you do read and to some extent engage with the literature of academics. So do you think there's anything in the book, any questions you've raised that will attract attention and generate debate among scholars or people who are thinking about similar questions as working with or in other upland groups in mainland Southeast Asia? Well, well, I hope so. You know, I've said from the beginning, I might not be the most qualified person to, to write this book, but I'm the one who did it and took it on because it's not a project that most academics would ever take on just because it's way too broad. However, this is the first book length treatment that's ever been written about the Lisu. I, what my hope is just is that it will um, stimulate further scholarship. And I can say that since the book came out, that I've been contacted by Lisu from all over the world. Like at the, at the beginning of this project, I might have had two or three Lisu Facebook friends. <laughs> I now have hundreds. And when I was in Thailand in February, I, I met a, a Lisu who's working on the Lisu Dictionary. There's some, I mean, this is, it might not happen, but there's some possibility that the book could be translated into Lisu, into the Fraser script. So, yes, I'm hoping that, that this is just a start because it would be too late to start today to do the kind of ethnographic work that I, that I was able to do. So I, I think that that's its value and also taking such a, a broad look across Southeast Asia and just to see the way Lisu have adapted in three such very different states and uh, different political systems. So whatever I've spoken, I've spoken many places, including at UCLA, and I've been invited back there. We've had extremely interested and, and spirited discussions because I think, for one thing, the, the book is extremely accessible, easy to read, and has it's you know f full of ideas that are are worth taking further. Michelle, do you have any? tips or words of encouragement for listeners who may be sitting there looking at the old manuscript or perhaps manuscripts gathering dust on the shelf, should they take another look at them and have a go at doing what you did with this project or leave them where they lie? I think it depends. If you really feel passionate about their project, as I felt about the Lisa, that passion will take you a long way. It's an impossible story that this book ever saw the light of day. So there is hope. You know, I have other projects which I'm just as happy are sitting in the bottom of my uh, wardrobe. But in this case, I was driven by the belief that this work had real value and that I was hoping that it would be carried on by other scholars, particularly Lisu scholars. My Lisu audiences in Burma, Myanmar, and in Thailand were, I have to say, some of the most enthusiastic audiences who had all sorts of questions. And I tested some of my theories because I thought, here I am, I'm an, I'm an outsider and I'm making statements about their value systems and, and so forth. And I, I would check them, like I would ask uh, an audience like Lisu and say to the women, is it true that you 
don't care much for childcare that you'd rather be working. And they would go, yes, yes. And other things about the position of women within the culture. So, so this was extremely satisfying to me. I mean, obviously I haven't got everything right and there's so much more depth that, you know, needs to be gone into. But I, I like to think of, of my book as starting a conversation about a group that is not very well known, but and yet that has a very strong will to cultural survival. And aside from starting that conversation, what else are you working on now? Are there, in fact, other manuscripts in the box there that you're reconsidering, or are you under something else completely different? Well, actually, before I took up the Lisu again, I'm actually writing about the Civil War in Los Angeles and in Southern California, which is another topic that has really interested me for a, a long time, because most people think of the Civil War as the battlefields of you know, Gettysburg and, and Vicksburg and so forth across the South, but the California, especially Southern California, had a very interesting and, you know, a a role to play because most of the elites in the 1850s were Southern-minded. Most of them came from the South and had uh, much more sympathy with the Confederacy, and and that went along also with the Mexican California elites who were mainly hacendados, who had a lot more in common with plantation owners. Plantation owners had slaves and the hacendados had uh, Indian labor. So that is a project that I am reimmersing myself into. Anything else back in Southeast Asia? Well, there's the possibility of translating my book into Lisu. And I'm working on the possibility of a a grant to do that and working with David Morse, who is a third generation missionary, who is his first language was Lisu. And he's considered probably the top expert in the Lisu language and has worked with developing um, advanced Lisu script, which is a script that can be used on a regular keyboard. There's also a Lisu keyboard that's in Unicode. So the idea of preserving Lisu language is also something that I'm interested in continuing on. And and that that would be probably the area I would like to continue my scholarship and to try to to see if I can can do anything to promote. Well, Lisu readers can look forward to that possible publication down the track, and we'll have to get you onto another channel to discuss the civil war in Southern California. In any case, Michelle Zach, thank you very much for joining us today to discuss the Lisu Far From the Ruler. Well, thank you, Nick, for having me. It's been a real pleasure. And thanks, as always, to our listeners on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. If you do have more than a passing interest in Southeast Asia, why not go to the website of our sponsor, the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, for details of the 2018 Asian Studies Association of Australia Biennial Conference this July 3 through 5 at the University of Sydney. We'll be holding a special New Books in Southeast Asian Studies panel on the second day of the conference, which will bring together three previous interviewees, Holly High, Patrick Jory, and Lee Morgan Beza to discuss writing, publishing, and more. I hope to see you there. Hey, thank God she the boat.